This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Yusim. I'm on the faculty here at the Wharton School, and welcome to a new series uh, entitled, you've seen it, but I'm going to read it to you, Leadership in the Wake of COVID-19, What Enterprise Leaders Will Need to Survive and Prosper in the Years Ahead. That's our topic. That's your topic. We're all thinking about that today. And this is a product of a collaboration between the Wharton Leadership Annual Conference, the Center for Human Resources, and the Center for Leadership here at the Wharton School and Knowledge of Wharton. So welcome. Uh, last time I looked, I think we've got more than 700 people tied in. Uh, we're going to interview our distinguished guest uh, for about 10, maybe 12 minutes, and then throw it open to you to fire questions at us. Our guest is Sherry uh, Balambegi. Uh, 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 Sherry is the Chief Executive of PriceSmart. And just a couple of numbers about what Sherry is responsible for. PriceSmart is a, it's a Costco-like chain. It's got some 45 warehouse clubs, more than 9,000 employees, 3 million members across the Caribbean, Latin, and South America. So, uh, Sherry, great to have you here with us today. I know you've been a little bit busy in the last few weeks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Sherry, let's go back a couple of months. I think uh, near February, you were seeing the signs coming in, uh, maybe ahead of uh, some folks out there, that um, the coronavirus was coming to your region. And as we've talked before, you referred to it as a kind of incipient existential moment for you and your company. So if you wouldn't mind picking up in late February, walk us through those moments as you could see it coming, what you did. And I was particularly impressed with the fact that your top team, you asked to meet with you every day, every day, except for Easter Sunday. So Sherry, there it is. Thank you. Uh, well, Michael, in, in February, we started hearing about threat of the coronavirus and the pandemic. And in the role as a CEO, you're always responsible for looking around the corner and anticipating those things that uh, people may not be focused on when they're meeting their day-to-day -day responsibilities. But uh, in, in a leadership position, you're always trying to look out for what might be out there, what could be threatening, and how do you best protect your people and your company? So when the pandemic, or I don't even think it was declared as a pandemic at that point, but when this virus started getting a lot of traction in the media, um, I made a, an effort to do a lot of reading on it, everything from uh, following what was happening in Europe, uh, starting with, and then China, seeing how the trend was moving and trying to decide whether or not this was something that was going to sooner or later become a challenge for us in the United States and in the regions where uh, PriceMart operates. We are in 13 different regions that you mentioned. And there was clearly a geographical march. And at that moment, I had decided that we as a company, given what I had known in the little more than a year that I had become the CEO, um, had to start thinking about what would we do, assuming that we were faced with the same threats. So the first thing 
that I recognized was that uh, given the contagious nature of this illness and how highly contagious it was, the ability to protect our employees and offsite them was very important and allow for remote work. One of the challenges was, though, that I was also uh, just beginning the efforts of getting our company to get a little bit more modern about its culture and its philosophy and its capabilities to remote work. We, this was not part of our culture. So in mid, mid to late February, I uh, assembled my leadership team and started what I called an action task force and asked for sort of a review that said, basically, if tomorrow you were told you can't come back into your office, tell me exactly what the impact would be on you and uh, what would you need to be able to continue. And this was everything from you know, our, our CFO, the ability to transact, move money, uh, pay bills, and uh, do buying, et cetera. So they went off and came back and realized that this was uh, no small undertaking. And at some risk of being viewed as being a little bit of an alarmist at the time, I went ahead and made sure that every employee in our two states where we have we, uh, our U.S. employees, about a thousand of them, are in San Diego and Miami, uh, had the ability to work from home. And so the, the leadership of the company just kicked into action to make sure that we had the capabilities. One was ability to work remotely. Another was that each leadership member had to find an alter ego so that if something were to happen to them, who would be the person and identify that person to step in for them. And then the third was to basically... Uh, well, this came a little bit later. At the beginning, people were, were skeptical that we would need to make much of a change uh, at all, that this was another influenza that was coming down the pike. Uh, we, we ordered all the equipment that was necessary, got everybody set up, and then by March, I think about early second week of March, I had everybody off-sited. Now, this is for a company that did not allow for remote working you know, in any meaningful way. So a lot of teaching happened before that, and um, a lot of education, not only about the technology, but about how to stay safe and the importance of self-quarantining and minimizing their exposure. So educating our employees about the health risks as well was really important, and convincing them that even though it hadn't hit our shores in any meaningful way yet, it was something that was likely uh, a challenge we were going to have to contend with. So when we off-sited, everything changed about the way we worked with each other. Um, we had a whole series of meetings that I had adopted when I had become the CEO and started making changes along the edges because, again, you know, you don't want to come in and be too disruptive at once. We have a lot of great people in our company with decades of experience, um, and uh, I was coming in as a new person, and it was an opportunity for me to basically step back from the way we were doing everything and the way we communicated with each other and say, if I were to look at what is the best way and the most effective way for us to communicate effectively and to get from addressing a problem to solving a problem in the shortest period of time, how would I have to do it? And it was, I came to the conclusion that there's 16 people that covered the entire universe of the company. And if I could speak to them, every morning that we would be able to figure it out from there. So we abandoned all of our business review meetings and our weekly staff meetings and 
also made us realize how many hours of meetings we were actually um, conducting every week. And uh, we started this call and it was really interesting because we did it all by life size. And the effectiveness of the communication and the cross collaboration that just organically evolved as a result of this regular communication with all parts of the company. So we had a 360 degree view as a team of what each other was doing. I, I believe it was one of the most transformative moments for the company since I've been there. And it has, it will forever change the way we uh, do business and, and lead and make decisions for the company. Um, it's been uniformly recognized how much, frankly, time has been wasted. Communication has gotten lost in translation when there's been pockets or silos or multiple meetings and dedicating an hour or two every morning with each other during this crisis allowed us to be very quick, very nimble. Um, it galvanized the group. It created a, a real strong bond amongst, amongst the group. And, um, and as a result, everybody was in problem solving mode. And it didn't take long, which was, this is something that I'm very happy to see. It didn't take long before we went from triage mode to what do we need to do for the future? How, looking beyond this crisis, um, what is it that we're seeing happening that we, where are the opportunities that is going to take us to the next level as a company? And that became a very positive motivator that we were seeing that we had traction to actually push forward things that we've been talking about for, frankly, you know, months, if not years, the, com the company had. And we were able to deliver on and put into action some initiatives in a matter of weeks that we otherwise thought were going to take months at least. Jerry, I've got two quick questions that we're going to open it up. You were an, uh, a kind of an early mover. You got on this. You had to invent your way forward. My guess is, though, you were also looking over your shoulder a bit, maybe at Costco, maybe at Walmart, others in the, in the retail industry. And were there any practices that you had seen already used elsewhere that you decided either to avoid because they weren't working or to bring into your enterprise uh, because they were? Uh Frankly, I think we were a little ahead. Um, there were some things that I noticed. Uh, I was paying attention to Costco. Costco and PriceMart have a common DNA by heritage. Uh, the founders were common. Um, and so we do look at Costco. But there were some things that, frankly, we, we were even ahead of. And when I say ahead, it's relatively speaking, because this, this virus was spreading to the U.S. before it was starting to have the impact in South America, in the region where we are, Central America, the Caribbean, and, and South America. Um, but, but I do, I definitely recall, you know, the notion of not doing demos with food, um, wiping down carts, things like that. Um, but it was, it was more, more about our team collaborating and saying, what are all the ways we can keep our members safe and our employees safe? And the, and the guiding principle for us was, there's so much going on right now, and we're in you know, so many different markets, each with different governments that have different restrictions and different limitations. Um, how do I simplify all this? And for me, it just came down to first priority, it was 
our people and our people meant our employees, their safety and well-being, and our members' safety and well-being. Making sure that we had the appropriate supply, the flow of goods to get to our members, and supply chain disruption, you know, to, to avoid uh, mitigate any supply chain uh, disruption as a result of the global pandemic. Um, ensuring that we were doing everything we could to meet the demands. Um, that alone, that that mandate allowed us to implement click and go and, and get online, something that had been in the works for years. And in a matter of weeks, we went live on that. Um, and finally, making sure that, you know, capital and cash flow and cash management was being closely monitored in light of the uncertainties. So, um, yes, we, we I, you know, you read everything you can and you pick and choose the best ideas. You stay informed um, and then you tailor it for the needs of your specific business. That's great. Sherry, a final question for me. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, you had a history uh, in the law. You were a litigator, an investment manager. Uh, you were a stockbroker. And looking to that past and then in more recent years, what in that experience in those several different areas or what in the contact you may have had with mentors along the way, or I know you have a relationship with Costco going way back, uh, what in those earlier years before this year helped you prepare to react early, to get on it, and address the problem before it began to blow up in your face as COVID-19 arrived? There it is. Okay. Um, you, you, you say it very nicely, but it's no secret that I was an unconventional pick. I did not come from retail. Um, and... Uh, I had been in numerous leadership positions in, in different arenas, and I did have the legal background. But I think there are two things that really positioned me to be able to take this on and handle it with some degree of confidence and ability to bring my groups together to, to support the effort. The first was, um, frankly, values, uh, strong values that the your point about mentors, Saul Price was a tremendous mentor for me when I was a litigator. He was a client. Um, and this, this concept of your employees coming first and making sure that you take care of your employees. When you take care of them, they will take care of your, your members or your customers and other businesses, as referred to in other businesses. And when you take care of those two, your shareholders will be taken care of. Um, and and so that has always been at the front of my mind and, and continues to be and no matter what role I play. And that's that's a hallmark value for me as a leader. Um, the second was. I know that trial lawyers have, uh, you know, different people have different views about trial lawyers, but the training you get as a trial lawyer is to be very analytical and ask a lot of questions. And um, that curiosity and, and asking and asking and asking until you really, you know, narrow it down to specific answers and not letting things kind of float ambiguously. And it, it's very effective in getting to the bottom of things quickly. It's very effective in holding people accountable. And um, I found that that skill set has been helpful to me, not coming from a retail background, to know 
how to ask the right questions to get a comfort level and make sure that all bases are covered. Um, and the other is, as a trial lawyer, you learn to work sort of in a crisis mode. Uh, when you're in trial for months at a time and stakes are high, uh, you know, the ability to focus really well when you're under pressure, when uh, you've got adversaries. Now, the adversary may be opposing counsel there. In this situation, the adversary was was the virus. You know, it was, a, it was an existential threat to us. So bringing the team together to be able to overcome this, um, it, I think it gives you the, the stamina, for me at least, the experience as a trial lawyer helped give me the stamina and the focus to get through um, an unexpected challenge like this. Gary, that's great. Why don't we open it up at this point? And the editor of Knowledge of Wharton, our co-sponsor, Steve Guglielmi, is right here. And Steve, I think you're going to invite a few questions for a few minutes right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have a number of good questions from the audience, so let's dive in. Uh, the first one is, um, has this experience made you rethink in-person work as a cultural norm? Okay. I'm, can I ask a clarifying question? Is it my work or is it work in general, like how the work environment for my employees? I think the work environment for employees and company-wide, would there be a different requirement, you think, after the pandemic for people to actually be working in person at a location uh, versus virtually? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have been... Um, well, let me let me tell you, the environment that our company was operating in was very conventional, and it's the company's enjoyed many years of success. And there there was sort of a an established mentality about you have to show up at work, um, and that's that's where you are held accountable, and that's how people know you're working. Um, there's a generational issue there, to be perfectly frank. I I'm uh, one of the first. I'm the first female leader of the company, and um, I could tell when I first came in, there were a lot of female employees who were asking about why we didn't have more flexibility. And so I was slowly trying to get us to evolve, both because of the fact that I think it's an important thing for women and it's an important thing for men who want to be involved with their family life and have balance. Uh, but also because I think the next generation expects this. And if you want to attract the right talent and keep them, you've got to shift to a mode of accountability. And, and that means the onus is on the supervisor to be able to know how what they're expecting of their employee so that they get the value that they want from that employee delivered, as opposed to someone holding someone accountable just for showing up. And those are two different mindsets. So. Uh, I thought that process was going to take a while to get us there, and it was going to be an incremental process, and I already had that in the works. Well, you know, as Winston Churchill says, you know, never let a, a good crisis go wasted. Um, this necessity has allowed all of us to work remotely and see how effective we become, and maybe in some might argue more effective. Now, I'm not saying it's ideal to stay like this, don't get me wrong, but the fact that we're capable of doing it, we've proven we're capable of doing it, uh, goes a really long way. And it will be used to be able to incorporate our, what I'm now calling our opening up of our, of our business, which in and of itself is a whole nother phase. Just like the states are opening up and countries are opening up, we have to do what's right for our company too. Um, and we're looking at everything from 
and we're first taking care of people who are most vulnerable, people who are older, have underlying health conditions, are pregnant. Um, I've already announced that anyone who has school children, um, and frankly, I've decided through the end of summer, people will continue to work remotely. Um, and then as we open this up, uh, people who are have underlying vulnerabilities will be able to stay home. Only if there's business necessity is it that they'll be required to come in. But then in time, we're going to come up with rotating schedules that will incorporate social distancing, allow for outdoor meetings, um, new protocols. So we're going to transform our work environment, absolutely, and I think it's going to be for the better. Yeah, this, and this next question is a, sort of a bit more sort of nuts and bolts. Uh, how, how have you kept track of your staff and their well-being during this time? So uh, in these morning meetings, uh, I have our HR, our head of HR there. Everybody knows that, uh, first of all, we made sure that people knew that if they were showing symptoms or if they were living with someone who was showing symptoms, that they should not come to work. This was even before we uh, remote work. And for people on the front line, I have frontline employees in country too that had to be managed completely differently. That was unavoidable. The, the PPE that they required and, and the quarantining and the contract uh, contact tracing and the mapping that we do there. Um, frankly, with 9,000 employees, we've only had uh, up to 38 cases of confirmed diagnoses, and they're actually coming down in, in the 13 different markets where we operate. Um, so we have, uh, we have, I'm sorry, I lost track of what you were asking. Let me go back to what you said. Well, basically, how, how did you keep track of uh, your, or how have you been keeping track of your employees? I guess productivity is one question, but also their well-being, uh, so company-wide. It's sort of a waterfall approach. Each I, I keep track of my executive team. They keep track of people in, uh, that report to them and so on. And we've tried to remove all obstacles for people to be disincentivized from being open about the fact that they may have the illness or that they're having trouble, or they may be having illnesses that are unrelated. Um, you know, I've been very transparent with my own team I've, and, and been watching carefully. There's secondary effects of this virus, even if you don't contract the virus. You're, you, you know, you're at home, you might be a young parent with young kids that you're having to homeschool. Uh, you've got a spouse who may have lost their job. You may be both working with kids. Um, and I've been very open with the leadership teams to invite them to talk about it. Frankly, the other day, um, I shared my own personal experience. I think for years, especially uh, as a female, there's been this sense of having to constantly show that you're, you're 100% in control of everything. And you can be, but we're all still humans. And things happen and life happens. And, for example, my own father had a major health issue, and I debated whether or not this is something I should share with the team, and I decided I wanted to because I wanted to make sure they knew that I'm aware that things happen at home, and whereas as a team, we need to be there to support each other. There are solutions for all of these things, but to not have to feel like you have to hide it because we'll only be stronger if we're working together. Right. But um, you demonstrated a lot of foresight in all of this. And I'm wondering, well, one of the questions from the audience is, um, has there been a significant change in your culture, company culture, as you've moved from being reactive to predictive? 
Have you seen that impact other areas of the of the company? Yes, uh, I'm an avid reader. Um, I I read about anything that uh, relates. Even I can make relationships out of so many different things that would apply to the company to my people that I think would benefit them. I'm constantly sending out articles, information, and encouraging them to, when they find it relevant to their area of work, to share those outside materials. I think this has helped us become more external facing as a company, just by promoting a culture of being a student, a continual student. No matter how many years we've been doing what we've been doing, there's always good ideas. And um, I think people have found that to be stimulating and uh, given them, you know, one thing I've noticed is that I, people have been unshackled from the own way, old way of doing things. And that's been invigorating. That's been one of the silver linings from all of this is now there's a lot more discussion about new ideas and new ways of doing things. And it's much more of a group and collaborative dynamic. But it's because we've become more outward facing and taken information and best practices we've seen from elsewhere as opposed to just looking back to, well, this is how we do things. This is how we've always done it, and we've done okay. We've done really well as a company, so why change anything? The attitude has become more like, and we can be better, and we can do more. So we have time for about one more question before we have to wrap up, and um, that would be, um, what what has this crisis um, taught you the most about leadership? Or another way of saying that would be sort of, what I, one audience member asks, what has what have you learned most about yourself and all of this as a leader? Uh, I think communication, being honest with your people, with all of your constituents, your your employees, your members, your shareholders. You know, in, in the case of a public company, um, being transparent, letting them know when you don't have the answer. Um, creating an inviting environment for your team to suggest answers, to uh, brainstorm together. Uh, I think if, if you are not completely authentic in what you're facing, whether it's uh, excitement about opportunity or concern about an existential threat, um, you will not get the best thinking at the table. And something like this, you can't do alone. You have to bring the best out in your people. And when they feel that their views are being valued and you're being honest with them, they they jump on board to help solve. And and that's that's what our team has been doing. And I'm very, very impressed with what we've been able to accomplish in response to something completely unprecedented and unexpected for the company. So I, I would say authenticity and communication. Right. Thanks very much, Sherry. Uh, now right, back to Mike. Steve and Sherry, thank you. I'm going to close this down now. Here's uh, Sherry, my, I think, four-point summary of, of many points that you offered up. Um, when it comes to existential risk, get on it. And you got on it early. Number two, um, we talked about it briefly, and that is under the circumstance, having alter egos, other people who are ready to do your job, if heaven forbid you're taken out, um, it's not a huge element that we often think about, but in the world we're in, I, th I thought that was a, such a, uh, a a good step to be ready for the worst and hope for the best. 
Uh, number three, work is never going to be quite the same. We've learned a lot. We're going to readopt some things, but um, let's, no go, let's not go completely back to where we are. We've got some great ideas out of this. And then finally, your last minute or two here, um, life is a learning journey, just to use that phrase, and learning about yourself. You've been at this for a while, but learning about yourself, even uh, this year, you've already, you've said you've learned a lot about how you operate and how you should operate. So with that, I'm going to uh, just remind people of our next guest, and then we're going to thank uh, Sherry with a, a spontaneous round of applause. Uh, next week, I think it's May 28th, we have a former member of parliament. He served many years in the British Parliament and the Conservative Party. He became Minister of State for Energy and Climate Change, so he knows a lot about those terrains, uh, and he's now in the House of Lords. So Lord Barker will be with us as our, our next person, Sherry. We've got several others uh, following. Love to have everybody with us today. Um, and with that, Sherry, I just want to thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for all who've joined us, but in particular, Sherry, uh, you're going to see my round of applause and so hear the silent applause that is coming from our 700 people who've been listening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to watching the whole series. So thank you for all the work you're doing under these unusual circumstances. It is unusual. We'll get through it. Thank you, Sherry, very much. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.